0: here? You're going to take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 17. As we turn our attention to God's Word this morning, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 17 is found on page 903. 903 if you're looking at the black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in. And before we uh, hear from God's Word, let me just once more. Briefly ask God to to help us as we hear from him. Let's pray. Father, we recognize this morning the truth that Jesus said, that your word is truth. And so we pray with him, asking that you would sanctify us by your truth. Set us apart for your purposes. Do the work in our hearts and our minds, individually and collectively as a church, by the power of your word. To the ministry of your spirit, to the glory of God and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Writing uh, almost two centuries ago, uh, Robert Murray McShane once declared, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Friends, when we have a chance to hear someone's honest prayer to God, we get a glimpse into that person's heart, their priorities, their values, their concerns. And in John 17, we have this unique, sacred privilege of going into the prayer closet of Jesus and listening to him pray hours before he would go to the cross. John 17 is a wonderful part of John's gospel where we have a chance to hear and see Jesus' heart, to see his priorities, and to observe his intimacy with God the Father. And we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. Specifically, we've been working through chapters 13 through 17, which are known as the upper room discourse. And in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his soon death and his departure. He's going to leave them behind and send his spirit, so he's preparing them for that. And last week in chapter 16, the last verse of 16, Jesus ends saying, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so, so far in these chapters, he's been teaching his disciples, teaching them to prepare him for his death and his departure. But now, in chapter 17, not only does he teach them, he prays for them. We can break John 17 into three sections, if you're taking notes. First, Jesus prays for himself. That's verses 1 through 5. Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. Second, Jesus prays for his followers in verses 16 through 19 prays for his followers in 16 through 19. And then third, Jesus prays for the church in verses 20 through 26. Now before we go into Jesus' prayer, one of the questions that might come to mind is, why is it that Jesus prays? If Jesus is God, why does he pray? Well, One thing to remember is that in his earthly ministry, he is God, he's fully God, he's also fully man. And so in his humanity, Jesus shows us what it's like to rely upon God, the Father. And he does so through prayer. One simple application for us of John 17 is that if Jesus in his humanity prays as he does, how much more should we in our humanity pray in order to rely upon God? The agonies of the cross are just around the corner And it's at the cross, at Gethsemane, or at uh, Golgotha, that he is going to defeat Satan. He's going to defeat sin, and he will conquer death itself. And so with the cross and the agonies of the cross hours away, Jesus prays for himself to prepare himself. And he prays for his followers, both 2,000 years ago and for his followers today, to prepare us. Friends, when Jesus prays, he prays perfectly perfectly. He prays according to God's word. He prays, and when 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 we hear him pray, we know that his prayers and what he prays for are the grounds of our assurance. What he prays is gonna happen. So let that be the ground of our assurance, our confidence as we hear him pray today, because it will come to pass. So let's turn to God's word in John 17 as we listen to Jesus. First of all, pray for himself in verses one through five. Verse one. having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here in verses one through five, one of the things you're gonna note is that Jesus prays for his glory. Verse one, the father, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That's his request. Glorify your son. And this focus on glory is repeated five times in these first five verses. Now, if you hear Jesus asking the Father to glorify the Son, you might ask yourself, well, isn't that that a selfish request? If you and I prayed that, it would be selfish. But it's not for Jesus. Notice the reason that Jesus prays and asks the Father to glorify him in verse 1. He prays that God would glorify him, verse 1, that the Son may glorify you. So his request for the Father to glorify him is not an end in, in itself. It's actually meant to then turn around and glorify the Father. That's his aim. Well, how is it then that the Son of God glorifies the Father? Well, we, we've seen him do it all through. The Gospel of John in his earthly ministry, as he he teaches, he glorifies God. As he loves, he glorifies God. He's showing what God the Father is like. As he performs miracles, he glorifies God. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he did that for his glory. So he's been glorifying God all through his earthly ministry. But I think here in verse 1, Jesus has something else in mind when he prays about God glorifying him. Again, verse 1 begins, Father, the hour has come. We've seen the hour all throughout John's gospel. And that hour refers to Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection and then his ascension. But I think he has in mind here his coming death on the cross. Now, we think about the death one way as Christians looking back, but we need to remember that if you're living in the first century, the cross is a symbol of shame, It's a symbol of humiliation and dishonor, embarrassment. The cross was a punishment that was reserved for the worst of criminals. And so what Jesus is praying for here is that God would actually use an instrument that was meant for shame and dishonor and turn it into an instrument that brings glory both to him and to the Father. But again, if you're living in the first century, that's not immediately obvious. The cross is shame. It's, it's disgust. It's embarrassment. And so to glorify, to glorify something means in part to make visible what was once invisible. To glorify means to make visible the riches and the beauty and the value of something that you couldn't see before. If I stood before the Grand Canyon at midnight and it was pitch dark outside, right before me is Glory. But I can't see it. I'm blind to the glory of the Grand Canyon, and so I'm indifferent to its glory. But when the sun rises in the morning and the light of the sun shines over the entire landscape, wow, I see it. It's glorified. It's, it's, it's showing, it's making visible the beauty that I once was blind to. And friends, that's what Jesus is praying about. Left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead. We are spiritually blind to the glory of Jesus, to the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. We'll look at the, left to ourselves, we'll look at the cross and just pass by it as something that's foolish, something that's unimportant and unnecessary. But by praying that God would glorify him, he's making the request that God's plan of redemption would become visible to us that we would see its glory, why? That we might be saved. His request to have God glorify him is ultimately for our salvation, our good. Notice that in verse two. You have given him authority over all flesh. The Father has given Jesus authority over all flesh. Why? (laughs) To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's remarkable. If you or I were entrusted with authority over every human being on this planet, everybody has to do what you say tomorrow. How would you use that authority? <laughs> I know I'd use it, and it ain't, it ain't like Jesus. Jesus. Because of, of, of who he is and what he's done and accomplishing the work that God had given to him. even on the cross, Jesus is entrusted to him with all authority. Hear the echo of the great commission. All authority has been entrusted to Jesus over all flesh. And why, and, and what, what purpose does he use that authority for? Not selfish purposes. He did not come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gives eternal life in verse two. But what is eternal life? Verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We tend to think about eternal life as the, the ongoing of time, as, you know, it's, a, it's the extension of time such that we live forever and ever and ever and there's no end to time. And that's, that's true, but even those in hell will exist for all eternity, What Jesus is saying here is that eternal life is not just the extension of time, eternal life is knowing God. It is knowing his his love, his favor, it's it's knowing this relationship. It's not just knowing facts about God. Eternal life is being in a relationship with God where we see his glory, his value, where we treasure him And and in treasuring him, we're satisfied fully in Jesus. That's, that's eternal life. So, eternal life, is, in that sense, is not just something that we wait for. Eternal life begins now as we begin to know God more and more and as we begin to know Jesus more and more. And yet, we can drift through this life thinking otherwise. We can drift through this life thinking that contentment and joy and the fullness of life is not found in Jesus. Rather, we assume that eternal life, in, in that contentment and joy and fullness of life, is actually found in money, success, the praise of man pleasure, power, and we can treasure these things and pursue them so much that we idolize them and trust them in the hopes that they will give us life. But again, notice verse 3 reminds us that there is only one true God. There's not many gods that will give life. There's one true God, and the only way to know this true God is by knowing and trusting Jesus, whom God has sent. He said in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus closes the prayer for himself in verse 5, saying, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This helps us understand what Jesus did when he took on flesh. He didn't cease to be God. He simply laid aside the glory that he had in eternity past with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In his incarnation, in his earthly ministry, he laid aside that glory temporarily while he, at the same time, he did not cease to be God. In his humanity, in his earthly ministry, he took the form of a servant. He became a man, fully God and fully man. And he took on flesh, he laid aside his glory. He became a, a person in flesh like you and I so that he could die. Jesus became a man knowing that the purpose of him becoming a man was that he could die in our place for our sin, to pay a debt that we could not afford. And that death is just hours away as he's praying. On the cross, some of the last words that Jesus would say is, it is finished. The work that God had given him to do It is finished. And you hear him saying that same thing in verse four. He says, having accomplished, finished, the work that you gave me to do. Friends, this is the good news of Christianity. Christ died the death that we deserve to die for our sin. He died as the sinless son of God on the cross in our place for our sin. And on the third day he rose again Victorious over sin, Satan, and death. He he rose again to prove that he had paid in full the debt that our sin had incurred against a holy God. He had finished the work for our redemption. Friends, on the basis of this finished, this accomplished work of Jesus on the cross, on the basis of this finished work, God gives us eternal life. And so because this is a finished work, that means there's nothing more that you or I can add to it. Not good works, not religion, not money. It's God's grace. And you receive, the only thing you can do is receive God's grace freely. So friends, if you're not yet a Christian, the only thing left for you to do as you hear this good news that Christ died for you and he rose again for your salvation, the only thing left for you to do is by faith to receive that gift, to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ. I pray that you do that today. I pray that you see the glory of Jesus in the cross, his justice, his mercy, his love, his grace, and I pray that you turn away from your sin and trust in Christ. Well, after praying for himself in verses one through five, Jesus turns and he prays for his followers in verses six through 19. That's point number two. He prays for his followers in sixteen through 9, or six through 19. So look at verse six with me. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. At first glance, that seems complicated, but when you kind of walk through it, it's 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 actually beautiful what he's praying here. Jesus is going to make specific requests for his followers, starting in verse eleven. But before he gets to the specific requests for his followers, in verses six through ten, he's explaining who it is that he's praying for. If you drop down to verse nine, he says, "I am praying for them." So we naturally ask, "Well, who is the them?" The them are those who have received God's word given through Christ. The them are those that have been around in Jesus' earthly ministry and they believed that Jesus is who he said he is. He's the Christ. He's the son of God. Notice in verse six, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people. We're gonna see God's name, God's name, God's name all throughout chapter 17. God's name is his revealed character. God's name is who God is. Now, Jesus came into the world as God's word. He came communicating with his life, with his teachings, with his miracles, everything about him, he came communicating, this is God. If you see Jesus, you see God the Father. He's God's word to the, the world. Communicating and revealing the truth about the character of God the Father. If you look at Jesus, you see God's name. That's what he's coming to reveal. So in verse 6, when he mentions that you, when Jesus mentions you, Father, gave them to me, that's divine sovereignty, and that they have kept your word, that's human responsibility, what we see is that these people that he's praying for are both a gift from God and they are... Those who have kept God's word, obeyed and trusted God's word. So one of the things we see all throughout John's gospel is that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are held together. They're not in conflict in John's gospel. Jesus sees no conflict in them. I don't know how they fit together, but both of those things are true. If you are a Christian, you were were given to Christ by God and you have believed, received his word. Now the world does not trust and obey God. In John's Gospel, the world hates Jesus. The world rebels against God. It rejects Jesus as the Christ and rejects his word. And I think that's why Jesus prays for those that have come out of the world. Don't mishear what he's saying. When he he, he specifically prays for his followers and not the world, it doesn't mean that God hates the world. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world, but Jesus specifically prays for his followers because of the challenges that they're going to face in a world that hates God. Now, if Jesus is praying for his followers, does his prayer apply to us today? I would say absolutely yes. Jesus no doubt had his initial followers in mind when he was praying in verses 6 through 19. But when you get to verse 20, he prays also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. So the first disciples lived in a unique time in salvation history. Got that. But the common factor between them and us is belief. They trusted in Jesus. They saw him as a son of God. And because we share that in common, what Jesus prays for them, he also prays for us. So if you're a Christian today and you hear Jesus praying, you should hear Jesus praying for you. That's remarkable. When we hear Jesus pray, we hear his heart. So, What is God's heart for you? He's in verses six through ten, he's saying, These are the people I'm praying for. He's saying, This is this is who you are. So what do we see about his his heart for you today as a Christian? Jesus specifically in six through ten speaks of the Christian as those who belong to God the Father. Notice in verse 6: Yours, they were. Verse 9, they are yours. That language of yours or ownership or belonging, that that language is the language of family, right? When I got married, I gave myself to Katie, and Katie gave herself to me. I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. Same thing for the kids. If, If Hudson and Gavin are playing soccer and they score a goal, I may shout, that's my boy! But if they accidentally break the neighbor's window, that's my boy. To be family is to belong. It's to take ownership of each other. It's to take responsibility for each other, for better or for worse. That's why when you join a church, you covenant together. We're taking responsibility for each other. You're mine. I'm yours. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. And you are vice versa. But Jesus is saying that, Christian, you belong to God. Your family. God chose you. Before the foundation of the world, to be his cherished son or daughter. That's both humbling and it it just knocks your socks off by how much he loves and and cares for us. But not only do you belong to God the Father, Jesus goes beyond that and highlights the fact that the Christian is also God the Father's gift to the Son. Again, verse 6, yours they were, you belong to God the Father, and you, Father, gave them to me. You belong to God the Father, and then the Father gifts them to the Son. All right, it's Christmas time, it's your birthday. Have you ever, in, in the past, have you ever received a gift where you're kind of like, eh, I'm a little disappointed. I, I didn't want that. I'm never going to use that. That's, that's not what I like. Anybody? If I, when I hear that as a Christian, I am a gift given by the Father to the Son, and then I look in the mirror at myself, It's easy to assume that Jesus is disappointed with a gift. Oh, Zach, that's the gift? <laughs> Do you ever feel that's how God sees you? Oh, okay. Friends, many of us feel that way. Satan loves to whisper that in your ear, that God does not care. He just puts up with you. But that's not the way that the Bible talks about you. In this prayer, Jesus is saying, you are a gift that God the Father is giving to God the Son. And he doesn't just, he's not disappointed with that gift. (laughs) It's God's grace, but he's not disappointed. In Ephesians 1.18, Paul refers to us as the riches of his glorious inheritance. Don't miss that. When when, when he receives this gift, he looks at you and says, wow, that's the riches, that's valuable, that's the riches of my glorious inheritance. It's, It's not because we're glorious, it's because of his mercy and his grace. It's because of the value that he assigns to us by his glorious grace. Or here's a better verse, not better, but even a cooler one, Zephaniah 3.17. In Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord who saves us, we're told, has great delight in us to the point that he rejoices over you with singing. He doesn't just get the gift and say, eh. he, he delights in you so much that he's singing over you. So don't miss that. Christian, you are God's gift from the Father to the Son. And our value is not inherent because we are something special, but it's because of God's amazing grace. Now, growing up, my dad had a, uh, uh, a football that had the signatures of every Nebraska Cornhusker football player when we, I think it was when we were the Big Eight champions that year. And every football player on the team that won the championship that year signed the football and it was on display in the house. I thought oh, that's cool. Like if you're if you grew up in Nebraska and you have that football with every signature of the team, that's like the holy grail. And so I remember like, Dad, can I have that football? And I don't know why, but he, he gave it to me. He let me have the football. And I remember thinking, oh, this is amazing. And so initially, I received this gift from dad, and I took really good care of it, but I was a kid. And so when you're a kid, you kind of lose interest in things pretty quickly. And I, I took care of it at first, but eventually I lost interest in it. And I, I remember playing catch with the neighbors with the ball, and eventually I just lost it. And today I have no idea where that football is. Friends, praise God that Jesus is not like us when he receives a gift. As God's gift given to the Son, Jesus will be faithful. He will never lose interest in you. He will never lose sight of you. He will never make a misstep in his care for you. He will never neglect you. He'll never leave you outside in the rain. He will never lose you. He is the good shepherd who leads and cares for and keeps us as his sheep a gift from God the Father, and he keeps us all the way to the end. And that's why Jesus, the next thing he prays for in his prayer is for our protection. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them. And no one, not one of them, has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." Now we know from his earthly ministry, what he's saying is that during his earthly ministry, he walked with the 12 disciples, he kept his disciples. Now that his death and his departure is near, he now turns to the Father and prays, I'm about to go, I'm asking you, Father, to now continue this ministry of keeping, continue this ministry of protecting my followers. What does Jesus pray that God the Father will protect his followers from? Here, he prays, protect them from disunity. Look at verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Why? Why does he pray for God to keep them? For what purpose? That they may be one, even as we are one. Now, notice here, Jesus is not just simply pray for unity. God, I pray that you make them unified. That's not what he prays. He prays for their protection that they may stay unified, that they may be unified. The point is, is in praying for protection against disunity, what Jesus assumes is that there are dark, evil forces in this world that are striving to destroy the unity of the church. And with all the strife that we see in the world right now, this is evidently clear. But, friends, we should not be alarmed by what we see today. We should be sober-minded, but we don't need to be alarmed. And we should not assume that our day today is unique. Jesus prayed this 2,000 years ago because these evil forces that were threatening to destroy the unity of the church were there 2,000 years ago, and they've always been there, and we're just seeing the continuation of these evil forces seeking to destroy the unity of the church. And so his prayer is important today, just as it was important back then. So what is it that makes Jesus' followers, what is it that makes them one? Well, notice he says, he asks God, keep them in your name, the in there is a, a, a preposition that can be translated in or by. You could He could be saying keep them by your name or keep them in your name. The point is, is that God's name, again, the revelation of his character, who God is, 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 the, is the thing that, that, bring, that makes us one. That Jesus says in verse 11, your name which you have given me, then clarifies the name is the truth about God, As revealed by Jesus, the truth about God revealed to us by Jesus in the Gospels, in his word, our agreement on that is what makes us one, even as God the Father and the Spirit and the Son are one. So we can disagree about lots of disputable matters as a church, and there is a time and a place where it's good for Christians to discuss those issues of disagreement on disputable matters. But as D.A. Carson warns, all too often Christians fail to cherish the things that unite them with other true believers. Instead, they cherish the the divisive things. All too often we, we fail to cherish the things that unite us and we cherish the things that are divisive. Friends, what do you cherish? What do you value? What's important to you? What concerns you the most? What takes up your mental space throughout the week? What do you pray about? Pray that we as a church cherish what's most important. We share a common experience of God's grace, a common object of faith, a common rejection of the world a common need for Jesus, a common love and trust in Jesus. The things that unite us as the people of God are so deep and so eternal that they transcend the things that divide us. Friends, in Christ, we really truly are one. There's just one vine and there's many branches. There's not two vines. I don't like this form of Christianity. I'm going to a different Jesus. There's only one Jesus. One vine, many branches. You don't like the branch you're sitting next to? We gotta learn to love each other because there's only one vine. That's what he's calling us to. So Jesus asked the Father that he would protect the church from the dark forces, the evil forces in this world that shift us from the truth that unites us and to the forces that divide us, the, these evil forces, these sins that with, are within our hearts that seek to divide. Jealousy. Selfishness, bitterness, an unforgiving spirit, a spiteful tongue, or a keyboard. Angry isolation from other believers, an unwillingness to admit error, an unwillingness to sympathetically learn from one another. A lot of these sins that are are in our hearts are the very things that seek to divert us from the things that unite us to the things that divide. And Jesus prays, God, protect the church from that which seeks to divide us. I'm so thankful Jesus prayed this way. How much more should we continue to pray as Jesus prays, that God would keep us individually and us as a church from such evils, that we put those sins to death when we see them in our hearts. Jesus prayed for protection against disunity in verses 11 through 13. But he also prays for protection from the evil one in verses 14 through 16. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Notice how when Jesus prays for his followers, he, he prays about the way that we are to relate to the rest of the world, a world that is in opposition or in rebellion against God. Look at verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of this world. So Jesus, when we think about how should we relate to the world, Jesus, Jesus does not want us to isolate ourselves. To build a very high Christian fortress wall, have only Christian friends, play only Christian games, drink only Christian coffee, eat only Christian chicken, read only Christian books, and arrange our lives so that we're only around non-Christians as little as possible. He doesn't want us to isolate ourselves from the world like that. I grew up in a Mennonite church uh, that had that tendency from time to time. And when Christians isolate themselves from the world like this, they often develop very strange and unbiblical definitions of what worldliness is. So we shouldn't isolate ourselves from the world. But when you think about how should should the church relate to the world, we also should not assimilate with the world. Look at verse 14. They are not of the world Jesus says, I am not of the world. And he repeats that again in verse 16. We shouldn't isolate from the world, but we should also not assimilate with the world and be like the world. We are to be distinct from the world as Jesus was distinct. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 5? That if if salt loses its saltiness, what's it it good for? Or in Luke 14, he says, if the salt becomes, if it loses its saltiness, there's nothing good for it but, but to be thrown out in the manure pile. Friends, the, Our saltiness is our distinctness from the world. It's our striving for holiness, for following the commands of God and obeying them with the help of the Spirit. Two books that I would encourage you to read about, read if you want to think more about what does it mean for us to be distinct from the world. Uh, the first is this book by Jerry Bridges. It's called The Pursuit of Holiness. Um, I have a couple of copies. uh, If you want to grab one afterwards, I have a couple of copies to give away. And then another book is written by Kevin DeYoung, The Hole in Our Holiness, Filling the Gap Between Gospel Passion and the Pursuit of Godliness. I have a couple of, of those to give away as well. But both these books are kind of helpful treatments of what does it mean for us to be in the world but distinct from the world. Friends, Jesus does not want the church to isolate from the world or to assimilate with the world. Instead, notice what he prays. He asks God to keep them from the evil one. Satan is the evil one. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. And he wants to deceive you. All throughout the day, he will whisper in your ear, He will use the world, he will use your sinful flesh to whisper lies in your ear. Lies about God. Lies about who you are. Lies about the world and what reality is. He's lying constantly. And if he gets us to believe a lie, he can discourage us. He can tempt us. He can redirect us away from the path of righteousness into the path of sin. One of the tools that Satan uses to deceive is the hatred of the world that he mentions in verse 14. Because if enough people join in and agree with a lie that Satan is, is, is pumping into the world, it's not gonna be long before sin starts to look normal. Everybody's doing it. And then righteousness seems strange. And the Bible is flipped upside down or twisted. And it's then that the church feels the pressure. When, when the world agrees in their rebellion against God, and says this is the new rule, it's then that the church feels pressure to conform to the world, or else. Do you feel that pressure? And that's why that's Paul says in Romans 12, verse two, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Jesus asked God to protect his people from the deception, the temptation, and the discouragement of the evil one. All right, so how how can we as a church avoid these errors? How can we avoid falling into the ditch of isolation or the ditch of assimilation? Look at verse 17. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified. In the truth. I love verse 19. Jesus is saying, I, I, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart for the purpose of, of, of this thing happening. I want to sanctify you in the truth. Jesus is committed to helping this happen. And so, not only is he committed to this happening, he prays for God to protect them from disunity. We saw that first. And from the evil one. Now, he prays in verse 17 for their sanctification. That's the, that's the third thing he's praying for. Sanctify them in the truth. To sanctify means to set apart, to to set apart from from the world, to set apart for God and for God's purposes. The means or the instrument of this sanctification, the the, the way this sanctification happens is God's word. Sanctify them in or by the truth. Your word is truth. Friends, the whole world is wondering what's true. You know what truth is? You're holding it in your hands. We don't have to guess. His word is truth. And as we read it, God sets us apart for his purposes. Well, what are God's people set apart to do? Again, verse 18 answers that. Verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we don't isolate ourselves from the world, we don't assimilate with the world, we are sent into the world. Just as Jesus was. Jesus never compromised, nor did he isolate himself from the world. In John 18, 37, Jesus says, for this purpose I came I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. That's why he came. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And then he says, he turns, he comes around this prayer and says, For the same purpose that you sent me in, I'm sending them in. So if, if God sent Jesus to bear witness to the truth, guess what your role is? To bear witness to the truth. to bear witness to the truth about God, about sin, about redemption through Jesus and our need to trust in Jesus. Are you a Christian? You a Christian? Are you a Christian? All right. Then you, friend, are set apart by God for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Habakkuk 2.14 prophesies that the, there's coming a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woo, I look forward to that. How is God's mission to spread the knowledge of the glory of the Lord over the earth as the water covers the sea, how is God's mission going to be accomplished? That's a big task. How's he gonna do it? What's God's plan for bringing about the spread of the gospel? You ready? Just look around you right now. Right here. The church. The church. The church is God's plan for the spread of the gospel so that the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God would cover the earth as the seas cover the, the, the earth. There's no plan B. If, if this doesn't work, God's got no plan B in the back. He says, you're it, you're the plan. And that's why Jesus prays for the church in the next part of his prayer. Point number three, Jesus prays for the church. Got a big task, we need Jesus to pray for us, that's exactly what he does in verses 20 through 26. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you 6 through 19, he's praying for his initial disciples, I think, with us in mind. But starting in verse 20, he specifically prays for those who will believe. So he envisions these, his initial disciples are going to go out and share the good news, share the gospel, the New Testament will be written, and then the church will be established. And that's what he means when those who will believe in me through their word. So what he's praying for starting in verse 20 is the church. He's praying for us. And for a second time, he prays for the unity of the church. Look at verse twenty-one: that they may all be one. Verse twenty-two: that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse twenty-three: if, we've, if we're wondering what he's talking about, that they may become perfectly one. Three times he's praying for unity. So, with the mind, so when you think about this, this, this call for unity, what is the mindset? within the church that is necessary to foster this unity that Jesus is praying for. Look again at verse 22. It's it's, it's spectacular. It's not immediately obvious, but it's spectacular. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. What's he talking about? The glory that God has given to the Son, he has given to us, the church. What's he talking about? Well, remember, the glory that Jesus is talking about, the glory that we saw in verse 1, is the glory of the cross. He's going to die. He comes as a servant. He came to die for the well-being of others. That's the glory that he was given, and that's the glory he gives to the church. It's what Paul was talking about in Philippians 2, 5 through 11 that Jesus in eternity past existed in perfect glory with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But in chapter Philippians 2, 5 through 11, he, he, he took the form of a servant, he humbled himself by becoming a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not as any death, but the lowliest of deaths. The death on a cross reserved for the worst of criminals. You can't get any lower, more humiliating than that. Therefore, Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. We're meant to see this this U-shaped curve. He existed in in glory in eternity past. He became a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death. He went to the lowest of lows. And then God, whoom, exalted him, gave him the name above every name. That's Glory and he says to his followers that's the glory i'm giving to you the path of glory for the christian is first the cross then exaltation then vindication his path he calls is he calls us to trust him and go on the same path denying ourselves putting the needs of others before our own being a servant so friends that's not normal we don't think that way about glory we think of glory as gold medals and and, and Hall of Fame ceremonies and front page of the, of, of, the, of the newspaper and interviews and red carpets. But Jesus is redefining glory for us. So friends, the next time that you let go of bitterness, the next time you bear up with someone who's difficult to love, you keep loving them. The next time you forgive someone who sinned against you, that's not your penalty, that's your glory. Proverbs 19.11, it is his glory to overlook an offense. When you're serving your spouse this next week, when you're cleaning up after your kids, when your service at church or at work goes unnoticed or without thanks, when you humble yourself and you become a servant and the world doesn't know you, or throw a parade for you. That's not your penalty, Christian. That's your glory. The world says that our value is based upon our performance. It's based upon how we compare to other people. And so that comparison and competition puts us in conflict. It creates conflict. It creates division in this world. That's kind of the, that's the normal mode of operation in this world. Ever since sin entered the world. There's been conflict, there's been chaos, there's been war, there's been hatred, there's been division. Unity is destroyed because of pride. And so part of the reason that Jesus prays for this unity is that the world would know that God loved them even as he loved Jesus. Jesus wants the world to know that the Father loves the church as the Father loved Jesus. Did you just hear that? Christian, Jesus is praying in verse 23 that you today walk out of this building knowing and believing and resting and glorying in the fact that God the Father, because of Jesus Christ, loves you like he loves Jesus Christ, his perfect son. (laughs) Come on. When we know that we're fully loved like that, accepted by God as his sons and daughter forgiven by God, we no longer need to compare ourselves to other people. We no longer need to compete and try to prove ourselves and, and, and the, do the things that create division in this world. All of that need for comparison and competition vanishes. Experiencing God's love helps us to see that true glory is the way of the cross. It helps us see that, It helps us to accept being servants who live for God's glory and the good of others people that the world overlooks, we by faith know that we will be vindicated. So, what does this humble, servant-hearted love produce? If, if, if pride and competition and comparison creates disunity, this humble, servant-hearted love that comes from having received God's love produces unity. Jesus gives us this strange glory of the way of the cross in verse 22, that they may be one. When we live in the path of the cross, as Jesus calls us to, that they may be one as we are one. Now friends, listen. The goal of our unity as a church is not so that we can sit down around a campfire tonight and hold hands and feel warm and fuzzy and be nice people. That's not the reason. That's not the end of this unity that Jesus is praying for. The reason for our unity is the glory of God. That's why our unity is important. If our unity is a reflection of how God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are one, and he prays that we would be one as he is one, if the church is divided, then the church misrepresents Who God is to a watching world. You see this in 1 Corinthians 1 when the church in Corinth quarreled. One group saying, I'm of Paul. Another group saying, I'm of Apollos. Another group saying, I'm of Cephas. Do you know what Paul's reproof was? It's very simple. Is Christ divided? No. So get united. So our unity matters for the glory of God. Another reason that our unity is important though is also for our witness. In verse 21, Jesus prays for the unity of the church so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the word of the gospel is proclaimed in our evangelism with our mouths in verse 20. We speak the message of the gospel. You can't do evangelism without proclaiming this good news. But, a unified church that loves each other as Christ has loved them then adorns the gospel pro- proclamation. And in verse 21, so that the world may believe, they look at the church and say, what is going on at First Baptist? We're all divided. How, how are these people who are so different, how are they united? They got different politics. They got different things about thoughts about COVID and all these other opinions, and, but they're united. They love each other. What's going on? The world takes notice of that. They hears the gospel, and by God's grace, the world believes that Christ was sent by God the Father. He's doing something. Verse 24, we're almost done. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love, loved love me may be in them and I in them. All right, once again, Jesus is praying concerning his glory. One of the things that ties this whole chapter together is glory, God's glory, God's glory. Specifically, He prays that those who trusted in Christ, verse 24, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory. Friends, again, that's eternal life. That's heaven. To be with Jesus and to see his all-satisfying, joy-giving, breathtaking glory. The glory we enjoy and see now, the glory of God, we see it in the pages of Scripture, but we see it dimly. Soon, one day, we will enjoy the glory of God face-to-face with unhindered enjoyment. Yesterday, we celebrated the the homegoing, the funeral of Joni Rogers, who died this past week. Right now, she's experiencing what Jesus prayed for in verse 24. She's seeing him face-to-face. What we only see dimly, she is in glory. She is full of joy because in his presence is fullness of joy. All right, church, let's just imagine we stopped everything right now because somebody over there in the other room is talking. Do you hear that? And we listen, and we hear somebody talking, and somebody's praying, and we realize Jesus is in the other room, and he's praying. Can you imagine that? And can you imagine if we stopped, and it's, it's quiet, we're all listening. We hear Jesus praying, and we realize He's praying for me. Tommy's praying for you. He's praying for you, Ben. Norris is praying for you. Kimmy's praying for you. He's praying for First Baptist Church of Upper Marlboro by name. Can you imagine if we heard him praying in the other room, what that would do for us? We don't have to imagine that. You read John 17, you hear him praying for you, for us. What an awesome, sacred moment we just got to witness in John 17. But it's not just that Jesus prayed for us past tense. Right now, the Bible tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And guess what he's doing? Praying. He's interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for them, for us. Friends, Jesus prays for our protection from disunity. He prays for our protection from the evil one. He prays that God would sanctify us by his truth. Jesus prays for our unity, To resound to the glory of God. Jesus prays for our unity to spread a witness about the good news to a watching world. And Jesus prays for God to bring us all the way home that we may be where He is and we may see what we only see by faith. Now, we may see His glory. When Jesus prays, God answers. God is faithful. And so he, friends, is our hope. He is our assurance. Jesus is our glory. Let's pray together.